and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a Scranton girl. While all eyes are on the high-stakes primaries for U.S. Senator and Governor, candidates for the State House and the State Senate have entirely new lines to contend with. Now, this has been a protracted battle that ultimately was sorted out in the courts. The bottom line is that while the PA House will have 203 members and the State Senate 50 members, the population of the Commonwealth has shifted over the last 10 years. So to reflect this, new districts have been created and others have had their makeup radically changed. So we're sitting down with Kate Huangpo from Spotlight PA. More than any other journalist out there, she's devoted considerable time to the saga and the personalities around these legislative lines. Kate Huangpo, welcome to my kitchen table. Thank you. Kate, I've really, really, really enjoyed your reporting. I think you have devoted more time than anyone in Pennsylvania history to these legislative lines. And it seems like every week over the last few months, you've had just incredible insight and perspective on the the battle, shall we say, the saga. So tell folks a little about your background before we even get into uh, into that. And then, uh, you know, certainly I'd, I'd love to uh, hear more about Spotlight and how you landed there. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much. That's very, very kind of you to say. But yeah, I went to Barnard College. I wrote for the paper there. So that's the Columbia Daily Spectator. And I covered politics and activism there. And that's sort of where I first discovered journalism. I never really considered it as a career path. But when I started working there, I just, it was sort of like the perfect melding pot of all the things that I love doing, you know, reading, writing, sort of research. There's a sort of public service aspect to it, which I really enjoyed. And yeah, from there, I just started devoting all my time to it in college and uh, interning where I could. I graduated during the pandemic. So uh, I went to grad school right afterwards at the Columbia J School. I learned some new skills in the data program. So it was sort of just a natural progression of me really being in love with journalism and luckily me being able to continue doing journalism. And yeah, and then right after J School, I started working at Spotlight. And as I recall, you're you're from Delaware County outside of Philadelphia. So yes, yes, Havertown. Havertown. All right. What it's like a it's like a mini United Nations uh, in Havertown and Upper Darby, and it's just incredible the diversity of Delaware County. So what where where did the spark for journalism come from? Well, I knew I wanted to do something public servicey. I think from a from a young age, maybe possibly because I am the daughter of immigrants, I was always slight like very concerned with well, what are you going to do with your life? You know, what what is your value add to society? I think a lot because my parents made it very clear from a young age that I'm very privileged to be here. I'm lucky to have all the opportunities that I have. And I was very lucky to be able to, you know, join the clubs that I wanted to join, read and and write and have the, the freedom and space to do that. And so I, for a while, I thought maybe I would do public, like government work, or I'd be a lawyer and nothing ever quite sat right uh, with those paths. And then when I got into college my freshman year and started journalism, I was like, great, this is it. This is what I've been wanting to do. I, I get to 
participate in these conversations and see how policy and social goods are being made. But I, I still am able to sort of retain, like, I'm not, I'm not batting for any sort of side. I'm sort of just sharing the information and uh, trying to spread as much knowledge as I can. And yeah, again, it was just sort of this perfect storm of all the things that I love doing and the things that I wanted to be doing. And I've been very lucky to be able to do it since that point. So I'm, I'm just curious, you, if I'm doing my math correctly, you would have been an undergrad during the Trump presidency. And what, you know, what was kind of feeling the mood, the energy on uh, Columbia and Barnard's uh, campus uh, over those years? Yeah, so my freshman year is when he got elected. That was actually the first election that I could vote in. And it was definitely an interesting time to be on campus. I remember the semester after he was elected, when that January, that was my first semester at the paper as well. And I was assigned the politics and activism beat. So I was covering a lot of speakers on campus, actually, who were sort of um, alt-right, white nationalist figures that had been invited by our college Republicans club. So it was definitely a very charged moment. There was a lot of protesting and various activist organizations on the group in, independent of our college campus itself. Like there were outlets coming to our campus. So that was definitely a, a bit of a, a hurricane. Um, but it was a really interesting time to be covering politics and to sort of be thrown into that mess. I remember one of the first political like events that I was covering was this speaker, Mike Cernovich, who came to campus. And he was sort of known for propagating the Pizzagate theory where, you know, Hillary Clinton and a bunch of, you know, Washington elites had run this child pornography ring outside of a pizza parlor in D.C., which was amongst the, the crazier things that he said. But there were huge protests, hundreds of people, people from outside of the Columbia bubble, Antifa protesters were there. And it was definitely a a crazy but very interesting time and thing to cover, especially as a, a freshman. And then, you know, 2018, 2020, were you back home in Pennsylvania for those uh, election cycles? Not as much. No, I was still, I was in school. So I, I did, wasn't as present there. Uh, 2020 towards the tail end. But over, over some summer internships or? I interned in New York for one of them. I'm sorry. Now I'm trying to remember what I did. I interned at um, World News at ABC for one of the summers. And that was, I believe, leading into 2020. So I wasn't there as much for the start of the election season. 2020, uh, towards the tail end, I was home because of the pandemic. I'm not sure if I'm getting my timeline right, but overall, I wasn't really in Pennsylvania that much during that time period. It's all good. I I'm sure listeners are definitely curious about behind the scenes with David Muir and World News, ABC uh, and all that. But why don't we uh, jump ahead to uh, your current work? Tell folks, uh, and if they don't know what Spotlight PA is, then I chastise them publicly uh, on, on this <laughs> podcast. But tell folks, uh, in case they don't, what uh, what Spotlight PA is. Yeah, Spotlight is a nonprofit newsroom that covers statewide politics. So we focus more on sort of more investigative, long-form journalism. We do uh, do some of the the sort of day-to-day covering the state capitol and such, but our pieces can be used in, we have a a network of, uh, I believe, over 80 newsrooms, and they can all use our pieces in their their local coverage as well. And it's sort of a project between the Inquirer, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and a bunch of uh, sort of founding newsrooms that sort of powered us and and started us, uh, I believe, in 2017, 2018. 
That's excellent. And is the newsroom, uh, if I can ask, is it, is it all virtual or are you physically in Harrisburg in the shadow of the dome? Yeah, we have a actual office in Harrisburg, like 10 minutes from the Capitol. But our reporters can live all over the state because not, not all of us are state Capitol reporters as well. So I believe we have a few reporters in Pittsburgh, some in Philly, some scattered across just sort of <laughs> across Pennsylvania overall. But uh, yeah, uh, there, there are there. We do have a presence in Harrisburg. How and when did uh, did Kate land at uh, Spotlight PA, this incredible nascent startup? I landed there right after I graduated from grad school, actually. I was very lucky. I think because during my grad school, I was doing a lot of work with mapping. My senior or my master's thesis was about mapping facilities for sexual violence survivors in the city. So I worked a lot with that software. And when I was applying to jobs, I think Spotlight was looking specifically for a redistricting reporter. So there was a lot of mapping overlap there. So I think that's uh, sort of how they first noticed my, my resume and whatnot. But yeah, since then, it was a pretty quick transition. I believe I graduated end of August and I started by September. Well, so listeners will remember that uh, after Thanksgiving, after the municipal and county elections, uh, we had an intense uh, season on redistricting. But I'm really glad we're talking now because, you know, there's been so many twists and turns since the start of the year. So maybe you can um, kind of give us a sense of how, when you were first assigned this beat, how you were looking at it, and then kind of the first surprise, and then the next, and we'll, we'll go through the uh, the saga. Yeah, so I think when I first got the redistricting beat, I sort of separated it into the process itself, like how I'm covering the process and then the results of the process. So I think because redistricting does happen a lot of times before behind closed doors, there were a lot of questions about how it worked, what methods were being employed, what metrics, what values were being employed when creating these maps. Because most of the times, Pennsylvanians only see the final product. They don't see all the little decisions getting to that product. And there are millions and millions of possibilities when drawing maps. So sort of just, you know, lifting the curtain behind that a bit, trying to figure out why the maps look the way they do. And then once we had the final maps or, you know, the 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 maps that were being released in, in real time, we tried to do a bit of analysis on them, you know, see what the results of those maps would be, both for like partisan politics, but also looking at what issues they would affect and what what sort of communities would be impacted by these maps. So by and large, a lot of this thus far has been the processes. Like I think my first my first big article at least was just trying to see how uh, demographers in the state government drew maps and why, what was their reasoning behind making the decisions that they did. And then we sort of documented the process as it was happening. There were a lot of hearings and seeing what concerns were being raised by citizens, by the expert testimonies of you know professors, nonpartisan advocates that were being brought in by the various government committees. And now we're sort of at the point where we're looking at the the effects of the maps. What what are the effects going to be on, you know, on partisan politics, on the the communities that are over underpopulated through these district maps, on communities of color, sort of things like that. But that's how I've sort of separated it in my mind when I was covering it. 
Just to take a step back, we increasingly have a lot of listeners in, in Washington, D.C., and your um, old stomping grounds to the Upper West Side of Manhattan and elsewhere outside of PA. So this time next year, or January next year, uh, there'll be 17 members of Congress in the Pennsylvania delegation instead of 18, but there'll still be 203 state representatives and 50 state senators. So maybe just explain to folks what you mean. The congressional maps, I think, speak for themselves. But if we, um, as we move forward in our conversation, Kate, if we can kind of zoom in and focus on these these legislative maps and also remind folks the breakdown in party, but, you know, what what if the numbers are going to stay the same in the State House and State Senate, what does this all mean with these maps? Right. So the census, so to take a, a big step back, <laughs> every 10 years, Pennsylvania redistricts to sort of account for the population shifts in the state. So we can see from the 2020 census that overall, Pennsylvania's population, while it has decreased, has slowed in its decrease. The population has moved from western, more rural parts of the state to the more southeastern urban and suburban areas. You can see that population growth. And you can also see that our growth is primarily, almost entirely fueled by communities of color. So while the white population declined, the Hispanic population grew a, a whole lot, the Asian population grew. So you can see that's how the change, uh, the changes express themselves. Redistricting is meant to redraw our lines so that those changes are clear, that they're, they're, those people, their votes are being expressed properly in the state assembly. So this year, there was a big hubbub, I guess I'd say, around the way the new the new map looks, particularly the new House map. House GOP members were saying that the new map is a Democratic gerrymander, that it over overly uh, expresses Democratic votes, and that it should be less, there should be, that there should be fewer Democratic-leaning seats. Right now, the division in the state assembly is uh, 90 Democrats to 113 Republicans. And the new map, the most nonpartisan analysis shows that it would be more of like 100 and 100 on either side. It's definitely more of a fair split. So the, however, to add some, some more nonpartisan analysis, we can also see that the, the map still does favor Republicans. Like when we're looking at partisan fairness scores, there is still about, I think, like a 2% Republican bias in the map. So the term for this technically is uh, anti-majoritarian. So if you were to have a statewide election, and each party got exactly 50% of the vote, there would still be a 2% lean on uh, favoring the Republicans in, in terms of how the seats were expressed. So even if Democrats got exactly 50% of the votes, they wouldn't get 50% of the seats. That's how this map works. Can you just, just tease that out so listeners can follow? You know, where, where my mind goes is you, you always see that map of every county in America and uh, after the presidential elections, and you see the majority of them are red, the same in Pennsylvania, the majority of the counties are red, but the population density in a place like Philadelphia uh, affects that Pennsylvania's electoral. Is, is, that, is, that, is that what you mean? Yeah, that's exactly right. So in our state constitution, we have four requirements for drawing district lines uh, or districts. They have to be contiguous, which means that There can't be any sort of isolated areas from one district. It has to all be one contiguous district. It has to be compact, which just means there's no sort of protrusions or tentacles that would make it 
you know, hard for a district member to to talk to the representative. They have to have a. We have seen that in other states where you have a piece of spaghetti yeah, essentially we, that goes down an interstate. We see it in this state too, to be honest. But yeah, it's it's sort of well. So all of these requirements are sort of like a balancing act, right? So if you could sacrifice compactness in order to have equal population, which is another requirement, so all districts have to be around the equal population size. They can be plus or minus five percent of what it should be the standard district size. And remind listeners about what 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 is that for a state house and state senate? How many constituents do they have? I believe for a state house it's about sixty four thousand, and then for a state senate seat, I believe it's about two hundred sixty thousand. And that sounds good, right? So I so I'm just going to go over them again really fast: compactness, contiguity, equal population. Trying to think of the last one now. Oh gosh, not a problem. So January comes. There's you know there's a bit of a ticking clock because folks need to start circulating petitions and and you know launch campaigns and plan if they're going to run for re-election and such. Uh, and that clock keeps ticking and ticking. And what happens? The initial few deadlines that were set by the State Department, we sort of blew on by. They. They set a deadline, I believe, in mid-January. It was just sort of the, the neither the redistricting processes, neither the congressional nor the legislative were able to meet those deadlines. But sort of the from my understanding of talking to county election directors, they really said that the the last last possible deadline would have been April first because that's when uh, they needed to send out sort of uh, mail-in ballots to people who are overseas, people in the military, sort of things like that. But they were really cutting it close. But that deadline was sort of the impetus for citizens to uh, sue the Department of State to get the state Supreme Court to take over the redistricting process, which is what ended up happening with the congressional redistricting process. So it served a purpose in that it did sort of hasten the process along, because by the time the state Supreme Court took over the process, the assembly and the governor still hadn't agreed on a final map. So that brings us to right around now. We're about a month out from the uh, the primary. And between now and then, a fairly large number of incumbent state house members have announced uh, their retirement. And then there's all sorts of brand new districts that have been uh, created, uh, arguably to reflect this, this population growth and change. So tell folks a little about the last two months or so, as petitions start getting circulated, as, as retirement news happens, as you know, these new candidates are popping up. Yeah, that's sort of yeah where we are now with the final decisions of both the, the legislative and congressional map, because the state Supreme Court was sort of involved in the final decisions for both of them. Uh, they also issued new election calendars to make sure that the primary still would happen on, uh, I believe, May 17th. And since then, we've, well, before then as well, we've been seeing candidates sort of, or incumbents, gauge whether or not they should retire, whether or not they should run. There have been districts that shift, you know, from moderately Republican to like plus 10 Biden or something like that based on past election analysis. So a lot of that influenced whether or not current incumbents should be running. But as of right now, we're still, we're still, we're, we're just rounding out sort of some of the filings against some of the petitions. Like there have been candidates who've filed to run, gotten all their signatures, and then other candidates have sort of lobbied against their or issued lawsuits against that to see whether or not those petitions can can stand. 
So that's sort of what we're, or at least what I'm watching right now, where there have been a lot of open districts that were created by the new house map at the very least that were intended to increase opportunities for communities of color, for candidates of color to run. And we've seen a few trends where candidates of color have made it on the, the, the ballot initially, but then when those signatures were challenged, they, they were removed. If you're comfortable naming names, uh, any in particular, uh, any spots around the Commonwealth that uh, have attracted your, your attention and other reporters? I think particularly we're looking, we're actually looking a lot at Allentown in that area, just because there's a really large Hispanic population. You see, all all roads lead to my hometown. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean, it's very central to Pennsylvania. A lot of activities happening there. But I think state, or no, Representative Schweier in District 14, I believe is one of them. And then I think District 20... 20 or 22 in that area as well. I, I saw um, just today that one of the candidates was kicked off of the ballot. I think in 22, they're running against Justin Fleming. I think it's Enid Santiago and Justin Fleming. And Enid Santiago actually ran in the last election cycle as well and came within like 50 votes of, of winning that primary. So that was one of the ones we were looking out for. Well, you've been super generous with your time as we begin to uh, to wind down. What, it, it, you know, this, is, this has been obviously a incredibly unique beat. Um, but what, what, what comes next, uh, with an eye to, uh, the summer campaign season and beyond, or, uh, have your editors not, not told you yet? <laughs> well, right now we're pretty much just in primary mode where we're focusing a lot on the primaries. We're looking at some of the campaign finance reports that came out last week, where I just finished writing up a, a guide to everyone running in the governor's election, so I, I think we have a few pieces coming up, or I know I have a few pieces coming up that are focusing on that and uh, looking at, you know, open versus closed primaries. And then beyond that, I think I'll still be covering state capital stuff. Uh, I'm, I still have a few pieces about redistricting on the back burner, some more analysis type stuff about the impacts of of the final map and like looking at how candidates of color did in this map cycle. So we do have to sort of wait for the primary and then the election to get the full sort of analysis or at least a a initial analysis and from there yeah just more state capital reporting more focusing on um the the process of the state assembly the laws that they create sort of things like that okay so before i let you go you got to give folks a sneak preview so you comb through these campaign finance reports of the many many gubernatorial candidates what were some nuggets uh, and some surprises that, that jumped out at you i did this in team with a few other reporters on on staff just because there's so many candidates so we all took a few uh, but for the ones that i did i looked at joe gale uh, melissa hart and charlie garrow and honestly, they they were not, I would say, the most exciting reports to look at. They really weren't, uh, didn't have as many donations as other candidates per se. Like, I think Charlie Garrow's report was the longest one I looked at. I think it was 54 pages or something like that. Uh, whereas I know my colleague looked at Doug Mastriano's and his was 850 pages. So that's sort of the the, the different scales that we're looking at here. But definitely. Well, you, you, won, you won the coin to us. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. But she was it was definitely it was her article to take point on. I was just, you know, providing some support with the copious amount of pages that she was going to have to look at. I was happy to take however few away from her. 
And I'm just, I'm just curious. So this was the donations they received or their, their personal uh, assets or both? No, no, it was the donations that they received. Although for most of the candidates I looked at, they were donating to themselves as well. So it, I guess a bit of both. There's going to be a lot, a lot of twists and turns in the coming weeks in the Republican gubernatorial primary. But Kate, thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you for the work that um, you're doing. As I said on uh, our last episode with reporters from the Inquirer, I think our world is really looking at what it means to live in a democracy versus a dictatorship and uh, a free press and the robust uh, reporting that comes with it is, uh, is certainly a hallmark democracy. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to a special episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Please join us for future episodes by subscribing. And while you're at it, give us a rating and a review. We love listener feedback, so drop us a note via our website, papoliticspodcast.org. And a very special thanks to Jake Schwartz for all his production assistance. I'm Ari Middleman, and this is Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics.